where no one was pushing for anything concrete and ambitious and global in its nature, um, we were there. We were the students who came up with the idea, who thought that, look, why is why do we have to fly 10,000 or 20,000 miles every year to go to this fancy climate change conference to come back with just, what, uh, piecemeal uh, progress in terms of climate change, which is something that's very existential to us. And year in, year out, we have been facing that. Um, climate negotiation postponing, no stronger commitment of phasing down, um, phasing out fossil fuel mitigation efforts, financing, all these things, just going around. It seems like going around in circles. And this is my COP27 last year was my third COP. And I see the progress is very, very slow. And at this stage, of course, you might just rule out, if at the pace that we're going, you might just rule out that some nations just have to uh, be sacrificed in order for others to live. Hello, this is Coming to the Mat, podcast from the Melanesian Women Today Impact Service Series. Told through the lens of everyday, ordinary Pacific Island women, the MAD series seeks to break cultural barriers and invite listeners to hear real human stories of making a difference. The stories you will hear from the series balance diverse interests and weave together the story of courageous women who dedicate their lives to making a difference in their communities and country. Coming to the MAD series is a safe space that allows for women in the Pacific to use their voices. It also explores the integral aspects of women's lives all across the South Pacific and gives the listener a window into the many different issues women face through storytelling. Hello and welcome to the Melanesian Women Today podcast, Coming to the Mat. I'm your host, Sam McKeldry, and I'm one of the team leads for MWT's media. Today's episode is going to be an exciting one as we have a special guest with us. Solomon Yeo from the Solomon Islands, the campaign director of Pacific Island Students Fighting Climate Change, is joining us to talk about his work in addressing climate change and inequality. Solomon is a true inspiration and has dedicated himself to advocating for climate justice. As a law student, he came up with the idea of seeking an advisory opinion on climate change and has since been instrumental in leading the charge towards a better future for our planet. We'll be discussing his role within the organization, the progress of the advisory opinion campaign, and the intersection of climate change and human rights. Additionally, we'll delve into the youth-centric approach of Pacific Island students fighting climate change and how young people can get involved in their campaigns and initiatives. We'll also be discussing the organization's collaboration with other groups, the challenges that they have faced in bringing about meaningful change, and how they measure the impact of their work. This episode is a must-listen for anyone interested in learning about the inspiring work being done by young people to tackle the pressing issues of our time and how they're making a real impact. So sit back, relax, and get ready to be inspired. So I'm Saya. I'm a sophomore at Bainbridge High School currently, and I did a service project with Mary like a couple a couple years back when I was in middle school. And then when I came back into high school, I decided to do some volunteering with the organization. So, so far I've been like writing some stories and I'm gonna be helping them with like their media management. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Um, I, uh, good to finally meet you as well, Saya. Sorry about the last time, but I'm, 
it is what it is and mm -hmm. now we're here so that's great um it's not i'm sure there's uh little to know uh, from my end i'm just um um campaign director of this youth-led organization called the pacific island students for climate i am from the solomon islands uh, born and raised um currently here in new york to support the campaign from the civil society side as well as um the government of Vanuatu mission here in, in the efforts to get the resolution to the United Nations General Assembly. So yes, yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Okay. All right, well, my first question is I just wanted to, oh, okay, sorry. I was just gonna kind of ask you about how you came to the realization that you wanted to dedicate yourself to addressing climate change and inequality and just kind of where that passion originally stemmed from. Okay, sure. Um, well, it it's it's a culmination of so many things. Like you grow up, uh, growing up in the Pacific, you you not only uh, grow up as an individual, you cannot grow up as an individual. You always grow up with your the community that you're based in, or you're part of. Fortunately for me, I have been part of many communities. Um, even my parents are missionaries. We got the privilege to travel around a lot around Solomon Islands and the other multiple communities, which many of the communities welcome us as one of their own. But growing up, you come to narrow down to specific communities. And it and those times in those communities, you spend a lot of um, engagements, not just with the people, but the natural environment and how both the people in the natural environment are very connected in terms of culture, traditions, and that somehow become something that you always grew up seeing. And back then, you you always notice these changes as well. Like, why why we had trees here, but we don't have trees anymore? Why is the weather getting hotter? Or why is that we're not getting certain fruits or plants? Growing up, that this did not make sense to me. You just feel like that's just the natural way things are. And you grew up going into high school, understand that uh, the changes that occurs around you are just of course the same you hear words like climate change you hear like environmentalism these things it, it does sound appealing but at that stage you just uh, you know it is what it is what still it's just some ideas people came up with but it really what really um inspired me and what really made me realize that these changes were not just only natural phenomenon but it's accelerated by anthropogenic interference of the atmosphere and of course um the the disturbance of the balance between um the level of which human consumption human um um direction in terms of what we what we now see as development um growing up in the pacific uh, growing up in solomon islands all i knew about growing up people talk about oh you need to understand that uh, development is for us to have skyscrapers like New York, skyscrapers like Switzerland, or well-developed education system like elsewhere and around the world. That was the term of uh, development, and that's why you need to go to have an education so you can help this country develop that like that. But coming up to real, coming going into university, you come to see that that's a very flawed concept as well in terms of how it at the cost of what at the environments and people's lives still today many of the solomon islands people that i know of still think like that and they still continually um 
um, conduct, especially in the political level. And, and because of the political level, it goes down into the grassroots level where people still think and believe that that's the only way to live and that's the only way to develop. Well, uh, and of course, abandoning the years or generations that their ancestors once practiced, that it's not always like that. It was always based, rooted in um, uh, sustainability and guardianship over natural resources and the environment. So you just come to realize and conscious about what these developments are. And at some point, you realize that uh, learning about climate change it's not just about uh, temperature rise, cyclones. It really goes deeper than that and coming to see that um, the uh, development models, economic models, society where they develop, um, go about around the world and the issue between inequalities and global south and global north and interactions between how we treat and envision uh, our life form as human beings being at the center of the ecosystem rather than coexisting with the ecosystem has been quite um, a flawed concept in itself. So in that, as a resultant of that, we are now in this climate crisis that we face and the consumption level and all these problems are going about. Um, of course, deep inside, growing up in these environments in the communities in Solomon Islands and seeing them change and realize that it is large part of it is because of climate change and human human um, uh, consequences of human actions. But then um, deeper within me is like, how do we then move away from this or try to absorb this? It was quite, quite difficult for me to envision what is the solution I can take. And of course, at that time, I had no, um, um, I would say confidence to really take the first step to really come up with solutions or really advocate for solution at that time. Um, until 2019, where um, we was we we're learning about the, the concept of um, climate change, but how it impacts our human rights, our basic human rights, and learning about that inter interconnectedness, we come to realize that that bridge is not well established, not just in uh, normal nar uh, literature or, uh, or politics, but also in law, uh, that's one of the major gaps in it, that climate change is not seen as a human rights uh, crisis in the legal little aspects. And because of that absence, it has created a lot of, um, I would say, um, um, yeah, it undermines political will to really galvanize behind it, to uh, see climate change from that perspective and uh, mobilize resources to address the basic needs of human beings all across the world. And for the Pacific, that is becoming more dire. But then from that classroom that we decided that it is, our lecturer said like, so you learn about this. So do you want to do something about this? And we're like, yeah, we want to do something about this. Like, I promise you not, I promise you, but although I promise you, the lecturer said, you will not get any, any marks for this. So of course, from many of the students putting their hands up to only a few students putting up their hands up saying that we want to also, regardless of not taking marks, we still want to do this because it's very important to us. And hence, I was one of the people who were really determined. It's like, this is the moment to really um, get involved. Um, this is a way we can find from our backgrounds as law students in our best capacity. And for many of us, we're very privileged to at least reach university level. It's many of us, many of the people and from our back where I come from doesn't have the, the opportunity to do so. It's like, and I'm at this level 
and privileged to be here. What can I utilize all of the learnings that I have so far at law school to really give back to our people? So I think that's the moment and, and the calling for us to really engage in that field. So from that end, I invested in, volunteered and invested a lot of my time until today um, in campaigning for this initiative. Yeah. Um, Sorry, so like your long answer to no, your question. No, no, that was great. That was great. Um, so you're talking kind of about like the advisory opinion. Do you think you kind of say like where that is right now in terms of like your timeline for the campaign? Of course. I mean, the advisory opinion campaign from that moment, we decided to go into research and we came up with, with that, that we decided that idea. I remember um, I was actually not supportive of the advisory opinion camp because I thought that it was too unrealistic. Like, come on. I mean, how can you convince a, a majority of the world's UN general member assembly as students from the South Pacific out of all, out of all places around the world, how can you convince them? You can, it's so hard to even convince your leaders uh, in the Pacific to get this on board. Um, I was thinking for an alternative legal route, but I re remember going up to one of my lecturers, uh, Dr. Uh, Moses Mawson um, is the public international law lecturer at the University of South Pacific in MLS campus in Port Vila. Uh, I spoke to him, said like, hey, should we go for this or should we go for this? And he said like, Solomon, like, you know how much climate change is impacting the Pacific. You should definitely go for the, you should, you should aim for the stars. And if you miss the stars, you will land on the moon along those lines, something like that, he said. So, okay, that's great. And then, of course, many of our members said we should be ambitious as possible. So that's the route we took, of course, advice opinion campaign. From that, just um, bidding speed through it, we managed to convince. Uh, we approached the party government. Back then, it was uh, um, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Honorable Ralph Regan now the Climate Change Minister, uh, managed to convince him. And then later on, he took the matter and the government to the Pacific Island Forum, convinced the forum and now uh, the government of Vanuatu has made it the national policy um, to take the advisory opinion all the way and since last year they have been proactively engaging with the United Nations UN member states um, doing all of the ticking all of the formal boxes of course there's a lot of formal procedures that you need to take um, and diligently the government has been taking all of ticking all of those steps and because of it was Christmas um, and because it was very political, uh, we were not able to get the UN resolution through to vote for this last year. Uh, we was aiming for December, um, December 15, I believe. But because some some of the members were really hesitant about some languaging within the text, they have proposed a new date, which would be the ideally at the end of March. There's not a specific date yet, as we still have to hear back from the fifth committee, that's the budgetary committee for the United Nations. They have to sort out their budget before you can like set a precise date. But at the moment, that's where uh, the, uh, the vote is anticipated to be held. But ongoing right now is a lot of um, a negotiation, uh, consultation around, as they call it, or informals and informals, where they the governments who are leading the resolution, the one of the government alongside other supportive states, they are um, consulting with other UN member states and like, what do you think about this resolution? Do you have any feedbacks? Yada, yada, yada. But at some point that will end and that will be the final resolution. And come March, they will table for the UNG for voting. Okay. Okay. So kind of like at this 
point um like what what have your responsibilities been in the past and kind of make that progress happen well in all fires in all fire in uh, in the kitchen in, in in our communities you would need a spark so i believe that's the biggest role that we played in this campaign we were that spark where no one was putting for anything concrete and ambitious and global in its nature um we were there we were the students who came up with the idea who thought that look why is why do we have to fly 10,000 or 20,000 miles every year to go to this fancy climate change conference to come back with just what uh, piecemeal uh, progress in terms of climate change which is something that's very existential to us and year in year out we have been facing that um, climate negotiation postponing no stronger commitment or phasing down um, phasing out fossil fuel mitigation efforts financing all these things just going around it seems like going around in circles and this is my cop 27 last year was my third cop and i see the progress is very very slow and at this stage of course you might just rule out if at the pace that we're going you might just rule out that some nations just have to uh, be sacrificed in order for others to live so that's the one strong motivation for me to get involved in this uh, project in the beginning because i can see that um from, from our research we see that there's a gap uh, especially in international law and also our uh, legal systems all throughout the world that they they have an incredible role to play but still there is that lacking of what we call a legal stock so in order for advocate climate change more ferociously uh, in uh, in international regional and domestic courts or national courts they they needs to be what we call case presidents like uh, a supply of arguments or um, cases that the courts can dwell on or look at or seek to as guidance in order to make a decision that can really compel the legislature or the government to make uh, stronger actions on on, on 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 specific areas but also um, uh, more importantly on on themes that are very important such as human rights and intergenerational equity in terms of the rights of people that who are yet to come the future generation as we said simply so in understanding that um, beginning webbing all of that uh, uh, arguments we really made that uh, proposal we put together a proposal and bringing it forward to the Vanuatu government sitting down with them and convincing them uh, making that pitch to them saying that this is why the government of Vanuatu should support this um, and all of this uh, you should be able to take it to the, uh, the regional forum to get it convinced and in addition to that we have campaign in extensively in the Pacific in in all of these uh, many of these countries uh, uniting with civil society in the Pacific as well as grassroots communities in trying to encourage that the government uh, encouraging to them that a climate change is a human rights crisis and B uh, we need greater international uh, legal protections as well as uh, greater emphasis from governments to start treating it like that and responding to it accordingly and then um, third is that um, in order to do that, we need to get an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. And one way of getting that, and the main way of getting that is to state uh, state uh, a political will. And that's why we need your support. We did a lot of campaigning around the Pacific over the years. It was tough. You have COVID-19, the 
the government of Vanuatu abandoned, almost abandoned that initiative because, of course, there are priorities back at home, um, in economic recovery and he- helping supplying the people back uh, for their respective citizens, of course. And regional- regionalism was all over the place, fracturing, cracking all over. It was quite a tough time, but civil society, we, we, we stood our ground saying that regardless of the climate crisis, uh, the economic crisis, as well as the COVID crisis, we still think that climate change still will be the single greatest threat that will undermine our future. So we still need to maintain this campaign. So we stood that through until the, we managed to get the Vanuatu government to be re-energized to take on this campaign back um, in 2020, late 2021, leading into late uh, into 2022. And along the way, we have managed to also mobilize the support of civil society all across the world, 1,500 civil society plus coming together to support the ICGO campaign. But from a, a very proud achievement from us, from the from the Pacific Island Students Fighting Climate Change, is the fact that we understand that not only the Pacific governments are needed to get this advisory opinion too, but governments from the entire world needs to understand this. And we need to share what we have we've done from our research and what we have we believe that could really address the climate crisis better uh, to other young people across the world. Because large part of well, all of us were young people at that time. We want to also have that same motivation, same drive instill among young people all across the world. So through our large efforts, we managed to convince many youth around the world where we, we got together and formed the national network called the World for Climate Justice, which brings in all of the youth campaigners around the world, campaign the ICGM campaign. And now it's it's going on very quite well in terms of this youth going on to their own leaders and encouraging to support this initiative. Yeah, and when it comes to like educating and involving youth, you know, that's something that you have done a lot of work on and is really important to you. Like why, when did that become something you decided would be like a central focus for you? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the questions I often are often been asked with by many of the people is like, why is Solomon? You understand that climate change, um, we it's beyond our control. Maybe science says this, or we only have eight years, or whatever. Not maybe it's beyond. It's something that we not longer can are able to control. And if that's we're heading towards uh, the doom and gloom in in the first place, why would you still continue to do this work? And it's quite a, a very negative way of look in terms of uh, what you call what we call hope in terms of hope for the future. But um, at my time in in Vanuatu, um, something very important um, was done upon it: the fact that um, um, many of the people who were were doing a lot of work back at home. Um, they were not doing it just because or out of hope, but they were doing it as a as a duty to the the future generation or the generation for them, because the past generation also fulfilled that root duty to make their lives better. So it's just essential a cycle of passing on, carrying forward that duty that they all respectively have to take on forward. And it's not because of hope in a sense, but it's just that that moral duty, that uh, that compass that drives people to do that. So at the end of the day, uh, to me, it's like, yeah, perhaps it's doom and gloom, but um, I know that my work or my involvement or my contribution will better the lives of people in the future, regardless of we're heading to doom. People will still suffer in, anyway in this world. 
Uh, but how can we mitigate that suffering at least so that less people will be able to suffer, less people, uh, uh, more people will be able to access to resources um, to help better their lives, to better protect themselves from this climate crisis. And but also a deeper, deeper part of me is, would also like to say that we can also, through those efforts, I can contribute to a bigger collective efforts of all people around the world. Um, to be able to ensure that we will at least attempt try to create a future that uh, our children are not able to be, be able to uh, be afraid of the environment but to take enjoyment in this and of course many things we see today we want them to also enjoy in the future so at least that little bit of hope is there but more bigger part of it is just um, our moral obligations to the future generation as did we are fulfilling what our past generations have done, did for us yeah um kind of what you're talking about with the advisory opinion and like how as someone who's been to the to the cops and seen how there's just been a lack of progress there like what is the kind of maybe the specific examples of momentum that you're hoping yeah as a result of like this campaign that you're really hard on mm, that's a very good question um look um that i that the term loss and damage if you it's now a buzzword all throughout it was actually um forward by um, uh, Pacific countries alongside small island states around the world uh, back in 1992. That's when, um, 1994, around those times, um, that's when Vanuatu has their first mission being set up around in New York. And it was that time where um, the, the founding fathers, um, as well as the first ambassadors, they came up with this term loss and damage because in their, their understanding is that climate change is more than just loss and um, more than just adaptation and mitigation. You have to also consider the, the loss and damage that has incurred, that the permanent and irreversible losses that people will suffer because of the, the acts of others uh, far across the globe. So the formation of that, um, you can see uh, is quite, at that time, would be very absurd. Why would countries pay additional to what they have to do? And it was a long fight, 1992 to now, 2023. It's a really long time. But that determination of small island states and now become a global phenomenon, a global movement now, loss and damage, people demanding climate justice, essential part of it is um, loss and damage in its sense. And now at COP27, they finally decided to establish that loss and damage facility. But still, the bigger question of who pays is still un unaddressed and the modalities to who gets how that payment is can be made and where it will come from is yet to be established so going back to that frustration of uh, waiting game playing the waiting game again this is where how you can see how frustrated uh, pacific states are. i'm sure now um, um millions if not billions of people around the world are now now going very serious about loss and damage large part of these people are from the uh, developing countries um so it is becoming quite, uh, you can see the progress is going quite um, slow in a sense. Mm -hmm. And this is why we are very encouraged to see that you need, there needs to be an accelerator. Um, if we cannot, if we go continue at this pace of progress, we will not be able to meet our targets, not be able to save um, 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 or address um, and avert the tipping points, as the science has put it. So one way of doing that is that is why we, we're precisely trying to seek an advisory opinion. I'm not sure if I answered that question properly, but um, I can elaborate more if you have any sub-questions to that. Yeah, 
Could you share an example of a campaign or project that your organization has undertaken that you're specifically like proud of? Mm. <laughs> um, there is a couple, but um, I would say the bringing together of uh, our people, people in the Pacific, to be able to sympathize and have empathy towards and have strong interest into the the ICGO campaign, not just from an emotional sense, but from an un, understanding as well as, um, um, uh, how do you say, uh, translating it into a, a, like a policy level to really try to bring it to the national level, not just in Vanuatu, not just in Solomon Islands, but many countries around the Pacific. So I think that phenomenon, I would say, I feel like it's a phenomenon because Look, you have climate at my when I started when I started involving myself in the climate change, that was in 2019. We only have the climate networks around the Pacific are very feeble. They are very uh, how do we say disoriented. They are working in silos. There were not enough. The networks were not quite strong at that time. But the injection of young people in coming into this space, uh, not not where just like you have. Um, young people nowadays. I'm not. I'm not downplaying this, of course, and not. I'm not um, uh, looking down at them or something. But people coming up with uh, protest placards and all these things, demanding what climate change. We need to act on it. Yada yada yada. But at the end of the day, there's something missing. That's like, what is the practical solution that you're asking for in this sense? So this is where we, before entering activism, of course, we thought very carefully. How are we going to take the step? Uh, how are we going to act, uh, become activists once we step, step out of this classroom? How are we going to orient ourselves? And although those things are very important to the campaign, what is more important to us is that we need to have a concrete and well-justified solution to put and propose to the world. And now having that solution, the Advice Opinion Campaign, we're able to go out to civil society and connect with them and say, look, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, no, <laughs> this is missing. This is the solution that we hope to improve. This is why you should support, and we will, we will be, we are here to help you out on this. So over the years, we have managed to work with them, do everything together with them, not just on the advisory opinion project, but working to establish, contributing our, our skills and knowledge voluntarily, fully. Um, we sometimes, many of us, didn't have bus fares. We just have to walk all the way to the to the civil society office and sit down there and like, hey. I'll write that letter or I'll I'll paint that placard or I will I will work on this policy. I will attend this meeting, all these other all these things. Little by little we contribute injecting that new fresh energy into the in, especially in the starting from the Vanuatu Climate Action Network. Uh myself, I went back to Solomon Islands and I connected with uh uh, uh civil society groups there who are interested in climate change, uh, but what no still disorganized. We came together and said. Look, Vanuatu did this. They formed the network and they're working quite well. We should also do that. So working with them, uh, drafting the constitution, developing the policies, setting up that network, registering it, uh, Solomon Island Climate Action Network came into be. Suddenly, Fiji, what we call the Pacific Climate Action Network, now is like, wow, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands are now established. We should also get into the game and get get connected. Now they also registered the, the network. And now Kiribati is also like, wow, that's quite interesting. We would like to engage on this. And all of that continuation work um, um, 
um, and efforts by um, some some of our members, but also other young people and people who are coming together to form this network was quite beautiful in that sense. And having been part of that, of course, from the organization, playing a huge role in that establishment and continuous support to that to this day, I think it's a great pride, not just about that budget campaign, but so many climate issues and environmental issues we've been able to push out. And more, one important is that working with them managed to give us more opportunity to share with them why we're so passionate about climate change. And because of that solution, it is a very easy thing to fall behind and support initially. And because of that, all of the networks of what, forgot the numbers, but it's it's in the hundreds of civil society in the Pacific have said that, wow, this is a great, um, interesting uh, phenomenon that has happened by youngsters from USB, University of Pacific coming to take this and also investing a lot of time to make sure that climate networks in the regions are strengthened so we can work together, not just nationally, but in a regional sense, push collectively to the international international level. And that that setting up of those networks has been incredibly, um, a large part of why very successful with the campaign, because all of them were also advocating for advocating, not just um, in the formal spaces, but in formal spaces at community, at, you know, those gatherings and leaders attend. Have you heard about the SGO campaign? So all these things happening all in separate thing, combined them together. That that really what really encouraged a lot of the efforts of governments uh, being able to support this at the end of the day. Um, and um, I, something on my mind, but it slipped. But that is something, of course, I'm really proud of. And I, I can continuously see that this these ongoing networks will continue to bring out more and, and grow stronger by the day um, and making sure that we will, our efforts towards um, climate justice will be very uh, more organized as well as um, unified in a unified front to bring these matters before the ICJ. I think one, one clicking point for me was there was a community in the Solomon Islands um, and we were now having uh, symposiums back at home on climate change. And of course, we never had symposium on climate change. But then it, I think it was last year where one of the community community elder came up and said, I want to support the ICJO campaign because, you know, my 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 uh, my community is really uh, the human rights are being impacted. And it's like to be able to uh, to be able to uh, have your campaign being reflected or not just the campaign, but also the importance of what human rights and the connection between climate change to go far as into the uh, communities in the Pacific, you have made an impact because um, there's a saying that says development only reaches as far as where the parliament can see. But these communities are so far, far away. And the fact that they, they heard and learned about the advice opinion campaign and the nexus between climate change and human rights. Yeah, there's been substantial progress in terms of our advocacy and our collective efforts towards uh, getting sure, pushing for this advice, uh, pushing for uh, solutions on climate change. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, like kind of what you're saying about um, like building those networks and, and bringing people together with that shared goal. Have there kind of been like obstacles or challenges when it comes to gaining that like civil society support? Definitely. I think, well, just from my short experience in climate activism, um, I think in, in, in any climate efforts, I would say, um, the beginning is always the hardest. Um, outright, uh, our lecturers were there to support us fully, but many of our colleagues and people around us saying that, what are you guys doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Like, it's embarrassing, just stop it. 
you're not gonna you're not gonna convince uh 18 members of the pacific you're embarrassing yourself why are you doing this i said look we we want to do this because it's something very important to us and even my closest friends will tell me like solomon you're wasting your time um i remember when we we wanted to launch the campaign we had to uh, come together and like okay how much you got how much you got and then we had to like pull in our money to just buy some um, some bread and some canned tuna to make some sandwiches to bring people together to at least because that's how you attract people in in the pacific you say there'll be food and people will show up hundreds of people will show up just for the food of course um in those events that first event the launching event it was it was quite important for us because at that time it was really for us, we never thought that we were able to hold event. I was literally scared. I was like, why would I never spoken at a panel hold an event, organize an event of this magnitude? Um, what makes you think we can do this? So it was quite a big of a challenge. We managed to do that. Later on that event, I managed to travel to the um, uh, one of my lecturers said, look, there's the Pacific Island Development Forum. That's like a, another forum to the Pacific Island Forum in the region. You should go and attend that. And there's a speaking slot that you should talk about the campaign. It's like, okay, where's the money? How, how will I get there? It's like, okay, um, we got some money somewhere. And then we bought a ticket. I flew over, made the speech. As soon as I got down, um, one of the, the leaders from the Pacific uh, government stood up and said, we'll never support this campaign. It really jeopardized our ongoing efforts in trying to get uh, influence through the, the agreement. Um, so definitely won't support this. I was really devastated. And, you know, those those memories of your, um, your, your classmates come back to your mind saying that, why are you doing this? You're punching above your, your weight over here. You shouldn't be doing this, doing this initiative. You're wasting your time. Um, it's, I was like, that's right. You, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be like this. Um, but of course, um, a lot of uh, encouragement from members and saying it's just a hurdle. We need to overcome this. Um, it's, it was anticipated to happen. We faced so much criticism from some some legal experts as well uh, within the Pacific and outside as well, saying that this will really undermine the Paris Agreement efforts. We continuously believe what we research and stuck to, and of course. Um, over the years, uh, I come to reflect on that. That was the right decision to do. Um, and yes, COVID-19, that was a really hard time because at that time, it was really going to going down the drain, the campaign. And we were reflecting, it's like, we should also stop this campaign. It's not going nowhere. But uh, we didn't. We said, let's just, let's just do our best as far as we can go. But that moment, it gave us a lot of, it bought, it a lot, bought us a lot of time to upskill ourselves and also um, help us develop unique way of um um disseminating um kind of what you were saying about like be trying to keep momentum going through like the COVID-19 pandemic and everything and I'm sure that was a really hard thing to do just because everyone had different priorities was that like how did you kind of approach continuing to do your work while also kind of being sensitive that there were a lot of other um, issues going on at the time yeah I mean first of all acknowledging that yeah climate crisis is it's it is the single greatest threat as highlighted by leaders in the Pacific Island Forum, as well as you can visibly see it with your with your own eyes, and understanding that at some point COVID nineteen will be over, but the climate crisis will be always be there. So that also one encouragement towards our work, 
um, it was COVID. What else could you do at that time? So you need to <laughs> keep something um, um, to keep you engaged. Of course, that's what we love doing in the first place. So that's what we did. Um, um, continuously uh, communicating with a community, uh, networks of civil society. Like, hey, I know it's COVID, but, you know, I know things are really bad over there. Things are bad in our country, but, you know, climate change, yada, yada. Yeah, just keeping the conversation continuing. Said, uh, I know it's hard, but can we do something online virtually? It's like, okay, what what do you what do you have in mind? I don't know. In this community, um, community outreach, can we put pl put like signboards that say climate change? You know, at least uh, people can see it, even though it's COVID situation. So little little by little efforts like that, we managed to um, have that. And of course, no one in the Solomon Islands know about Zoom. So we had to say, you know, there's a thing called Zoom where you can still meet and have conversations like that and then, you know, continue. And it was so hard in the beginning, but now everybody uses Zoom, so it's so convenient. You know? mm -hmm. um, so um, just being that persistent fly that constantly annoys you that, hey, climate change, hey, important, remember, very important. Uh, we need to continue the conversation, keep things running, click, click, click. Um, campaign, human rights, climate change, continue the message, keep that advocacy running. So that's what we did. Yeah. Nice. Um, and kind of around the community events that you're talking about, that you brought people together with and like the food and stuff, how are you able to measure like the impact and effectiveness of those campaigns and initiatives in terms of like raising awareness and getting people to align with your mission? Um, in the beginning, um, of course, the attendance uh, was quite a bit hard. Um, there's a thing called Pacific time where people show up very quite late. So it was quite embarrassing at the beginning, but then people gradually show up. Have to like call your friends, say, where are you need you here, come here. So you have to just invite your friends over. <laughs> so that happened at least. Um, but really interestingly, you have the civil society in Vanuatu, as well as uh, some government officials in Vanuatu, all over, some many of our lecturers actually turned up, so it was quite um, um, a great moral boost for us at that time. Um, impact, um, um, we have to start somewhere at the beginning, so that was a great launch event, and it was that time where we had a great. Um, it was actually a great event where you have great discussions about, uh, I guess, for the first time in in um, USP MLS campus where we talked about the nexus between climate change and human rights. So it was quite interesting. We, we've, uh, there's a lecturer from Hawaii University. He was, he was uh, very interested about the campus. So he personally flew out all the way to Vanuatu just to support us, the event. So that was quite um, enriching. And um, going onwards and how we measure, measure, me measure success. But of course you have the milestones such as A, continuous advocacy with civil society managed to get that budget opinion word by word into the um uh into the official documents of the pacific island uh, forum um just a little give a bit of context I'm, I'm sure you know about this but just to put it out there pacific island forum is like equivalent to european union we have all of the states and the regions coming together to meet at least once a year or they have some regional sub regional and other meetings as well this is where all of the leaders in the region come and meet. And that's the forum that they, they, they use to communicate all of the important issue, decisions and issues they have on their, on, their, on their agenda. So having all of those, um, and they have these things called communiques and civil society communiques that really help to influence the leaders to make decisions on certain areas. We 
for the for the three consecutive years we had the advisory opinion mentioned three times in all of those documents and eventually just last year the government's officially endorsed it but in the beginning as well we the government of Vanuatu managed to collectively working together with them we managed to get it mentioned uh, saying that it was such an important issue but still leaders are yet to decide but for us many of us we thought that that was a great success but for many of some of us as well we thought that that wasn't it we need to get it endorsed by the leaders which last year they finally did um, apart from that of course you have um, analytics and social media you you know how many people that your your posts and of course your 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 attention have reached out to and um, other that is that you have events and you can count how many people that have attended at events um, how many people have you reviewed the recordings how many people have participated in it and of course, the desire, the interest that that people keep emailing you to learn more about the campaign, wanting to take more actions. So little bits by bits, you you calculate over that times by three years or four years in the running into the campaign. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to compliment you on, I was looking at your website and I saw. I don't know if you had anything to do with like the music video that was up. <laughs> I thought that was yeah. great. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's those those uh, digital assets that that mm-hmm. was a lot of like I said in that COVID times you have to be really creative. So one thing that we did was that music video. It's a really mm-hmm. funny story. We wanted to have a collaboration with ambitiously, of course, as always, wanted to have a collaboration with um, New Caledonia artists, Vanuatu artists, and Solomon artists, and a co- combination of that, we were hoping to make a climate change music video in bilingual like uh, French and uh, in uh, English just to, sh- to do maximize our reach to other other um, other region, uh, other countries in the region that have often been neglected, such as the French speaking territories. Um, so we wanted to do that, but that failed miserably. So it's like, look, let's 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 down downsize our ambition a bit and try to work within our means. At the time, most of the capacity was in Honiara, Solomon Islands. So we worked with that and implemented that. It was it was such a tough project, that one. Um, yeah yeah um going through those islands and taking uh videos um walking in swamps where crocodiles where it's infested by crocodiles and getting um some of our one of i think one of our members got malaria from that from that uh journey so it was quite difficult in that times but glad we all pulled that off and eventually made that music video nice um, I mean, I guess kind of for my final question is just like, what is your mindset looking like right now, like about the campaign moving forward and just about like all of the hope you have for its potential outcomes? Yeah, like at the back of my mind, always we believe that the advisory opinion campaign is not a silver bullet at the end of the day. It's not going to it's not going to be the 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 uh, the cure that will wipe away um, the climate crisis. We always believe that it is a catalyst, although um, that would really open a gate of more climate actions, stronger climate actions to come in the future. And of course, if you read uh, a campaign brief and you go to a website, you'll see how precisely how that will take place. But at the end of the day, what really is important in that advisory opinion campaign is you have this incredible, powerful tool once the court delivered it, like the advisory opinion opinion. Um, you have this incredible, powerful tool, but without people knowing about it and utilizing it, all of our efforts, it's, it's down, it's, it's completely useless. 
because that's what the aim of it is to really uh, awaken the consciousness of people around the world in educating them about climate change is a human rights crisis and governments need to do better to protect their rights not only from the current but the future generations as well according to international law this is the that we try to accomplish and i don't think it will be it will end in march it will not end in 2026 where the advisory opinion they anticipate that the court will deliver the judgment it will not end in 20 10 20 years it will go long and long so i guess the best we can do for now is trying to educate people as much as we can uh, about this amazing project and how they can utilize it to bring about greater goods in the world so continuously inspiring them and that always this case reminded me that um climate litigation only began to grow in its exponential size only in 2015. But prior to that, there was little, almost little non-existent non cases around the world. But there's a case back in 2006 where um, an Inuit woman, she filed a petition claiming that climate change is a human rights crisis. Uh, human rights, uh, it infringes the ability to enjoy the human, uh, basic human rights. And then the, the tribunal that considered that threw it out, saying that you lack evidence. You don't have enough backing to and do this. And many people see that as a failure. Uh, I think that to us, it's really, to me, I personally see that as, a, as an attempt of great bravery. And of course, it's, it's the spark that we all have been looking for. It's this thing that really inspired people to take more action. And from that, you have ongoing efforts until 2015, where you have an explosion and trimming of litigation case now in the thousands all throughout the world. And that is why it encouraged us to also take on part of the reason why we're taking this advisory campaign, because we believe that from thousands, maybe we can bring up to 1 million, maybe 10 million, maybe 1 billion cases throughout the world on citizens being empowered by a, a legal resource that they can really fill the gaps that have been always been the reason why their case has been thrown out of court, but not even able to reach up to court at the first place so that they can hold the governments accountable and not just government, also corporations and other stakeholders that are um, uh, causing the climate crisis, as well as uh, educating people across the world that um, we need to work within, we need to maintain that balance um, in, in um, and between uh, human needs as well as the ecological needs um, in that sense. So, yeah, that's that's what the thing is. And of course, this work will go on forever, but at least um, there's a start. And of course, there'll be many more people and hope that can encourage many more people in the future to take this on. Awesome. Well, those are all my questions. I want to thank you for your time and also for all of the work that you've been doing. No worries. Thank you so much. happening to our world have you ever stopped to notice what does it take for you to see lives are being lost with 
With all the storms raging, corals dying, ocean levels rising, it's a threat to our human rights. Fossil fuels burning us past 1.5 degrees. What are we gaining from this madness of people in danger? We're calling out to you. International Court of Justice An advisory opinion On human rights and climate change We're calling out to you United Nations Leaders of today Protect the rights of the human race We're calling out to you Yes, we have a duty to all of mankind Legal obligations must stand to defend our rights. This chance to get clarity from the International Court of Justice on the legal obligations in a struggle for survival with a million voices. Save the Paris Agreement, everyone must act. So better mankind wake up now, it's not too late. Raise your voices up, speak for the children of tomorrow. With every forest burning, every person moving, every day is passing by, and time is running out. Bit by bit, the world is heating over, and it seems to never end. We're calling out again. We're calling out to you. International Court of Justice An advisory opinion On human rights and climate change We're calling out to you United Nations Leaders of the world Leaders of today Protect the rights of the human race We're calling out to you Save us National Court of Justice An advisory 
to you is created and produced by Melanesian Women Today, a non-profit organization. Please visit our website at www.melanesianwomentoday.org. That is all one word. Melanesian Women Today envisions a Pacific region where every woman, girl, and child in their respective communities in Melanesia lives a productive, healthy, and fulfilling life. We are on a mission to improve the well-being and quality of lives and also to promote and improve leadership in women and girls in their communities. Please consider making a donation today on our website to support our work. Thank you for your support.